If you would turn to the third chapter of Luke, we're going to be in Luke a long time. Please bring your Bibles with you again. Uh, I am working out of the NIV because that's just what I've always worked out of. Uh, you use whatever version of the Bible you want, but if you want to kind of be on the same page in terms of the actual verbiage, uh, that's, that's what I'm using. Um, we're going to go back to where we were last week for a bit. I, we left a little work left undone there. <clears throat> Let's begin in the 21st verse of chapter 3. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. And now we're going to skip all of the other stuff and get all the way down to verse 38. This is after all these names. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Let's stop there for a second. Last week when we were in the genealogy, um, here's what we learned. is that through this list of 77 generations, it was clear that Christ was part of and the culmination of all the history that had come before him. He's born into our history. He is the center of our history. He is one of us. He's born into a family, into a community, into a culture. He's born into the human condition. God's long redemptive history climaxes as he becomes one of us in order to rescue us. But there's more to this genealogy that we did not discuss last week. And, and first I have to point out to you what, what comes before and then what comes after. Luke 3.21, Jesus has joined John the Baptist in the Jordan. And Luke tells us that Jesus was baptized. And as he was praying, as he's you know, coming out of the water, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon Christ and God himself spoke and said, this is my son. Now remember that in the Gospel of Luke, the identity of Jesus Christ, who was this man, is a central theme throughout the Gospel. And that's why so far throughout the series, we've been asking constantly, who was this man? And here's what we've learned so far. In Luke 1, the angel of the Lord told Mary that her child would be called the Son of God. Jesus, at the age of 12, began to think of himself as the son of his father whose house was the temple, clearly indicating that he thought of himself as the Son of God. And then now, at his baptism, God himself bears witness to the fact, this is my son. All throughout the first three chapters, and as we'll see further on throughout the text, the message is clear you know, Jesus is the Son of God. Now, in total contrast to that, we see Jesus born in a cave, growing up in a poor family, participating in baptism. Now, baptism is not something that, that gods participate in. That's something that humans participate in. And then we see this genealogy, the 14 verses of genealogy, and we can't miss the lesson from last week that God, you know, Jesus is one of us. Jesus is a real flesh and blood human being, fulfillment of history and so on. Then at the end of the genealogy, Luke links the lineage of Jesus to Adam, the son of God. Now, can you feel the tension that's being created here? The tension is this, that Christ is fully man. He is flesh and blood. He is one of us, and yet Christ is fully revealed as the son of God. And at the heart of Christian doctrine is this confession of a mystery, the incarnation, that Christ was fully God and fully man. 
And to err on one side or the other is to completely miss the point and the truth of the gospel. He is both. Well, how can that be, you ask? That's a big question, and, and one that could take many hours to discuss, and we will come back to this throughout the Gospel of Luke, but what I want to show you this morning is something that's very interesting, and many of us probably miss at some point as we breeze through the genealogy, and that is that there was another man who Luke refers to as the Son of God, and of course, his name was Adam. Now, think about this. Similar to what we learned about Jesus, Adam was not born from the union of a man and a woman. Adam was God-breathed into existence. Genesis 2, 7 states, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, the breath of God is always a reference for the work of the Holy Spirit. In the same way, when Mary questioned the angel about how could this be that she was going to bear a son when she was yet a virgin, the angel says to her in Luke 1, 35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. It would be accurate to translate verse 35 to read, the breath of God will come upon you. The breath of God, because the word for breath or wind and the word for spirit is pneuma and it's the same word. And so the, the language about how Adam was created and how Jesus was born is very, very similar language. Now, as we, as we know from the Genesis account, and, and most of us kind of know that even if we're not very familiar with the Scripture, we know about Adam and Eve, right? We know that they were created in the image and likeness of God. They were breathed into existence by the Holy Spirit in order to live as children of God, bearing the family name, the, the family traits, to, to be in full communion with the Father. And by the way, ladies, just to make sure you, you understand that when we talk about the first Adam, when we talk about Adam, we're really talking about men and women. Remember Genesis 5, 1 and 2 states, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female, and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them Adam. So Adam is referring to both. Now, as you know, something happens to the original Adam that changes everything. Adam and Eve are, are tempted by Satan in the Garden of Eden. And as we all know, they, they give in to Satan's temptings, and they sin against God. And at that moment, the first Adam loses son of God status. Though Adam continues to be loved by God, the line of, of sonship, the blood of the father that is breathed into him, is not passed on to the next generation. The blood of Adam is tainted. It is tainted with sin. And that sin is passed on from one generation to the next uh, throughout the rest of history. There, it would not be until the days of Caesar Augustus, when Herod was the tetrarch of Judea, when a son was born to a virgin whose name was Mary, begotten by the Holy Spirit. Only then would another man appear on the stage of history who would be called the Son of God. And of course, that is Jesus Christ. And so we often think of Jesus as the second Adam. Now, Paul develops this contrast between Adam and Jesus in Romans 5 and again in 1 Corinthians 15, I'll just quote a couple of verses to whet your appetite. Romans 5.19 says, For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. 1 Corinthians 15.22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15.45, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being, 
The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So Luke and Paul understand that Jesus, being fully human, like Adam, they were both God-breathed into existence. They were both fully human, so they're both going to have the same choices to make. Both were born of the Holy Spirit, both were fully human, both lived in a sinless, perfect harmony with God for a time, and both would be tempted to turn from God, to seize upon their sense of entitlement, and to go their own way. As we enter into Luke 4, make no mistake, the parallel between Adam's temptation in the garden and Satan's attempt to corrupt Christ in the desert is a very significant and important parallel. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, one son of God, one Adam, would become the curse that brought death to all people, and the other son of God, the other Adam, the second Adam, would be the one who makes everything new. So let's, let's turn to uh, the fourth chapter of Luke, verses 1 and 2. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. Now, you can't skip over the little things when we have time, and that's what I'm going to enjoy. So we're going to take our time to go through this. This is a very, very loaded uh, set of verses that that come here in in chapter 4. The first thing that Luke tells us is that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. Now just think about that for a minute. I mean, I know a lot of us are not great biblical scholars and all of that, but we know about the Trinity, right? The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So how is it that Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit? I mean, if, if Jesus is the Son of God, why does he have to receive the Holy Spirit at his baptism? Here again, we're going to feel the tension of the incarnation. Jesus comes into the world as Son of God, but Jesus also comes into the world as one of us. At his consecration, Jesus is recognized by Simeon and Anna as the long-awaited Messiah, but then he grows up in Nazareth as an ordinary boy in a poor, ordinary family. Jesus, at the age of 12, recognizes that he is his father's son, the Son of God, but then he goes home and is obedient to his earthly parents, grows up in Nazareth, takes on the family trade until the age of 30. Then at the age of 30, he's baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist, and he receives the Holy Spirit. He goes into the desert, endures a time of testing and spiritual formation, which we're going to see, and then he launches into his ministry. So Luke just leaves us there. He leaves us in this tension that he is the Son of God from his birth, but at the same time, he's just one of us. And he goes through an act that all of us are called to go through, the act of baptism, and he receives the Holy Spirit just like we would. You see, you can't resolve that tension. Jesus is the Son of God, but he does not exist on earth as God indwelling a human body. That would be a mistake to think of it that way. Jesus sets aside any right to sovereign power or divine privilege in every conceivable manner. Luke is going to just point this out over and over again. It's so critical to the gospel that you understand this, that in every conceivable manner, Jesus humbles himself, taking on the full experience and reality of being human. And that's why Paul states in Philippians 2 that Christ empties himself, being born in the likeness of men, becoming obedient even unto death on a cross. You know, have you ever wondered why we don't hear about Jesus healing people or performing miracles between the ages of 12 and 29? According to Luke, Jesus could not even do that until he was 30, had been baptized, and received the power of the Holy Spirit. 
That's the only conclusion we can draw. Do you understand how important this is? This is huge. If Jesus walked the earth from his birth, wielding the unleashed power of God, we could hardly call him human. But Jesus was fully human. And the only means by which Jesus taught what he taught and healed who he healed and accomplished any particular miracle was through the power of the Holy Spirit residing within him. Remember what Jesus says in John 5.30, by myself I can do nothing. He's always pointing to God. He's always pointing to the Holy Spirit. That's why he goes away, oftentimes we'll see in Luke, he goes away to pray. He prays to, to stay connected with the Holy Spirit, to stay connected with his Father. When people call him good teacher, he said, why do you call me good? There's only one who's good. He's always referring to the Holy Spirit and to God the Father. You know, the same reality is true for us as human beings in the 21st century. Apart from the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit within us, we cannot do one thing that brings glory to God. As we go through Luke, you got to keep watching for this. Keep watching for the way that Jesus is filled with the Spirit and empowered by God through prayer to accomplish his ministry. You know, he is showing us how to be a human being, not how to be something other than a human being. And this emphasis of Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, we see that in Luke 3.22, and then it's twice stated in one verse in Luke 4, that he is filled with the Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit. Remember that in the ancient world, uh, repetition is always the means of emphasis. So when you see something repeated three times within a short span, Luke is emphasizing, you've got to get this. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. Now see what comes next. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus, where? Into the desert. Into hunger. Into great need. Right into temptation. I mean, the most accurate interpretation of, of the Greek in, in chapter 4, 1 and 2 would render this phrase. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was being led, was being led, by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days as he was being tempted by the devil. So Luke is emphasizing all the time that, Luke is, that Jesus is, is going to be tempted by, by the devil, he's being led by the Spirit. The Spirit's actually leading him to the place where he will starve, become very hungry, and be tempted. Now this is the critical point, and this is going to be just one little nugget I'll leave with you today, and we'll, we'll stop here. And that is that the empowering of the Holy Spirit does not keep Jesus from being tempted. The power of the Holy Spirit enables him to be victorious in the midst of temptation. Now what we learn about Jesus here in Luke 3 and 4 helps us understand who we are and how we are. We are also fully human people who struggle with temptation. Can I hear an amen with that? Yes, right? Now let me ask you, those of you who are believers, those of you who who have confessed and repented of your sins and invited Christ to reside within you and, and the presence of the Holy Spirit came upon you and your baptism and all that, how many of you were just deeply disappointed to discover that the temptations to sin did not go away? That's very disillusioning for me. I kind of thought, you know, once, once I was a Christian and once I was filled with the Holy Spirit and, and, and I belonged to the Lord, that I wouldn't even want to sin anymore. Turns out, I want to sin more. The, the temptations are even worse. And, you know, what Luke says here is that don't be surprised by that. 
The same thing happened to Jesus. In fact, according to Luke 4, we might even conclude that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit may possibly lead to a much fiercer battle with temptation than ever before. I, uh, I was speaking to Jimmy Dodd, who is uh, the president of Pastor Serve. It's an organization that, that ministers to pastors all over the country. And we were talking uh, several weeks ago about how pastors struggle with, with uh, purity and, and just kind of keeping it all together. And among other things, Jimmy had observed that a lot of the pastors had confessed that their weakest moments were, were when? Sunday night. Sunday night. Hours after they had been filled with the Holy Spirit, they'd been up here, they'd been, they'd been anointed to preach the word of God. And just hours later, the battles against temptation were at, at the fiercest. And it was often at those times on Sunday nights that pastors would fall. Many have borne witness to the terrible battles of temptation that ensued shortly after their conversion to Christianity or shortly after their baptism or shortly after an emotional and powerful encounter with God through worship and confession and repentance. I read a prayer request this week from a lady in our church. <laughs> you know, she's just lamenting that the sin that she had confessed two weeks ago continued to tempt her more than ever. It would simply not go away. And according to Luke, that is to be expected. So next week, we'll study the means by which Christ looks that temptation in the face and he defeats the enemy. We'll see how the second Adam accomplishes what the first Adam failed to accomplish. And, and here's what I want you to be prepared for and be reading as you study ahead and you, and you read the story. Notice this, that the Son of God's status that Jesus has plays no role in him defeating temptation. Christ employs tactics that are available to every one of us. Jesus defeats the temptations of the devil, not as one who is divine, but as one who is human, yet filled with the Holy Spirit and obedient to the word of God. You know, I don't know what's going on in your life. I see so many wonderful young people down here. I remember those days, and, and I see moms and dads and, and so many folks. You have your story, and you know that story, but let me tell you something. As you prepare to leave this place and step back into the circumstances of your life, you have to remember that on occasion, the very Spirit of God, through our faith in Jesus Christ, that, that Spirit of God that lives in you may very well lead you into the desert. Sometimes the Spirit will allow us to be tempted by our enemy in order for us to grow for us to demonstrate trust and obedience, faithfulness, and self-control. You know, we're not really going to grow spiritually until we do battle with our enemy. But always, always, in every single case, it is the power of the Holy Spirit that grants us that ability to turn from temptation and resist the lies of the deceiver. There is not one person ever in the history of the world who can resist the lie without the power of the Holy Spirit living within you. According to Luke, not even Jesus could resist the lies of the deceiver without the power of the Holy Spirit that came upon him at his baptism. So I have to tell you today, if you plan on walking out of here and being able to resist the temptation to fall back into the sin that you have so bravely and courageously confessed, you must have within you the power of the Holy Spirit. And the power of the Holy Spirit comes into our lives when we honestly confess and lament and repent over our sin. And we ask Christ 
who is our Savior, to enter into our lives, to make a dwelling place within us. And, and, the, and the way that that has happened throughout history is through baptism. That's, that's the symbol of it, the sacrament. And so if you have not invited the Spirit of our living Lord to reside within you, I encourage you to do that this morning. And, and when you do, you will discover that the temptations do not go away, that the power to overcome is yours. You believe that? Can I hear an amen? amen? Let's pray. Father, we are weak and foolish to believe that we can tackle this world with all of its temptations to sin and stray from you. We are foolish and weak to think that we can do that on our own. The great lie is that we have to do that before you will love us, before we're worthy of you, before we are, are able to be saved. We have to get it right. We have to straighten our lives around. Help us to understand that that is not what the gospel says, that it is through faith and repentance that we receive the Holy Spirit, and it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we stand any chance of turning from the temptation that would suck us into a lie that leads to such pain in our lives and consequently the pain that we inflict upon the lives of others. Lord, I pray that we would be honest with you this morning. If we do not feel the power of the Holy Spirit stirring within us, if we know that we have not confessed our sin and we have not come clean with you, Lord, I pray that you will accomplish that this morning in the lives of each person here, regardless of their age, and that you would bring us to a place where we have a confidence that you love us, that you have forgiven us, and that your Holy Spirit lives within us. Lord, give us the sharp sword of your word that we can stand upon the promises of who you are and what you've done for us, that we don't have to fall victim to a lie anymore, that we can be fully yours, that we can be redeemed and restored and used for your great kingdom purposes. I pray this on behalf of every person within the sound of my voice. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.